0: All right, let's go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. If you don't have a Bible, uh, we will have the text up on the screen behind me. In just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room in little racks beneath the seats. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take that physical one home. I'll tell you why later. But I got to move quick. All right. So um, we are. Uh, we've got one last week here today uh, in our in our little foray, if you want to call it that, mini series um, uh, through the Book of Psalms. Um, we've been knocking a few more off the list over the last month or so, and one of these days, Lord willing, uh, we'll get all the way across the finish line. And by one of these days. I mean, April of 2037, right. um, but God is good. All right, so uh, this morning, uh, I want to look at what I think, if I'm doing the math right, I think it's the longest psalm that we've ever tried to address in full so far, so I got to talk fast. All right, so it means I got to move quick, uh, but I think it'll be worth our time because as I've looked at Psalm 106, as I've dug into Psalm 106, I also think Psalm 106 is really awesome. Um, Now, if you haven't been hanging around with us as we've walked through the Psalms, the Psalms are a special thing. Um, Rather than historical narrative, rather than uh, any kind of uh, pure didactic uh, instruction, the Psalms are poetry, which means you have to treat them like poetry. You've got to kind of lean into them and read them and feel the feelings like poetry Uh, that doesn't mean that the psalm writers aren't trying to teach something they clearly are Uh, that's why the psalms were given to the congregation of israel that's why they were preserved down to us that's obviously true Uh, if they weren't uh, instructive we wouldn't have them all right But, but that teaching is less do what i do and far more feel how i feel all right Rather than stating a truth and then calling God's people to go and live consistently with that truth, the Psalms, uh, the instruction comes by way of kind of empathetically digging ourselves down into the joy and the celebration or the heartache and lament of God's people as they are experiencing whatever it is they are experiencing. And the reality is that we don't really have to try all that hard to get down into the muck of that empathetic level. There may be some of us who get a little uncomfortable whenever it's time to, to, to have the, the more emotional moments in life right? uh, rather than the go and do stuff moments. But it's not because the emotions aren't there. It's because we've been trained by our culture and maybe a hundred other things to filter those emotions out before they ever get to the surface and you're allowed to see who I really am. You're not allowed to know my junk. Only I'm supposed to know my junk. But, but the songwriters don't play that game. They're not too concerned with how other people may or may not see their junk. Their writings don't pass through the same filters that we've got, and it's just raw emotion laid bare. And in, in our more honest moments, it's not uncommon at all to be reading through a psalm or several psalms and suddenly discover that it feels like someone's been digging around in your business because they know us. The, the psalm writers live the same sin-broken uh, lives as we do. They have the same sin-broken hearts as us. They live in the same sin-broken world that we live in. And so I think that they truly, truly get us. And so we're going to look at a psalm this morning that I, man, I really think is going to sound maybe, maybe uncomfortably familiar to the most honest people in the room. Does that, does that sound like a fun day to you? <laughs> we're going for it. All right. It's going to prick us at a level that sometimes maybe, I don't know, maybe we need to be pricked. Um, Psalm 106. There's no superscript on this one, so we get to jump right into it. Uh, We don't know who the author is of Psalm 106 but there's some there's a pretty strong theory that it might actually belong to King David the reason for that is because the last two verses of Psalm 106 are almost directly quoted by David in another moment in another song that he wrote in 1st Chronicles 16 all right and so that like there's no attribution to the psalm so we it's just speculation but like David wrote exactly the same things in another place that's what we know all right and so verse 1 of Psalm 106 it says this Praise the Lord O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? All right, so that's... Several psalms open up with that same, that same line. We've heard it before. Like We even sang a song that included that a while ago. Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, uh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. In fact, enough of the psalms open up in, with exactly that line that probably half the room right now is humming an old Chris Tomlin song under their breath. I'm not wrong. thanks to the Lord, our God and King. Sing with me! It's love it. just I got some of you. <laughs> I got some of you. All right, it's not just me. All right. So our anonymous, maybe David songwriter, uses what seems to be a pretty standard kind of call to praise here. Alright, something that the congregation would be familiar with. Just like we've got our regular rhythms, we always know how Naomi is going to react when we sing Ten Thousand Reasons. All right? <laughs> we know. That tambourine's going to shake, and we're going to get a woohoo! <laughs> we got our regular rhythms, too. So did Old Testament Israel. But while the line is incredibly common, what's being communicated and celebrated in that line ought to never be glossed over. All right? It ought to never just merely be noted as the thing we do. See, before we get to our situation that's producing this psalm, we need to deeply realize who it is that we're talking to. And so the writer starts out by exclaiming, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Some, some of y'all have enjoyed reading the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, um, that translation. It's a, it's a great translation. I highly recommend it. We don't use it much around here because it looks different enough from the translation that we do use that would probably confuse a lot of people who aren't familiar with the Bible. Uh, but it's a really solid translation. Right? Uh, it, it uses the phrase hallelujah instead of praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And that's, that's all that hallelujah means. Praise the Lord, all right? But here, it's given as both an exclamation and what seems to be a command, right? It's not just tossed out there to see what people do with. No, the congregation is called to praise the Lord. It's a call to action, but not merely uh, praise as an end in itself. No, praise to the Lord, the Lord. And for those of you who don't have a lot of experience reading the Bible, notice that Lord is in all capitals there. That's on purpose. It's not some weird copy, uh, copy editor accident. All right? This is something that we've talked about in other, a lot of other seasons, but it's not something that we've covered at all in this kind of little mini run of the Psalms series. Uh, it's capitalized to show that the writer has used the personal name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush. If you don't know that story, uh, God is going to send Moses back to Egypt. He's just escaped out of Egypt, but he's sending him back to Egypt to face Pharaoh and demand that he let God's people go out of slavery. And Moses, in that moment, he asks uh, what he should call God when Pharaoh naturally has some questions about why he should or should not do that. All right, would you have questions? Pharaoh has some questions. And so God tells him, will you tell Pharaoh that I am since you? I is, I be. In ancient Hebrew, uh, they, they didn't write with vowels, only consonants, all right? And so uh, in the Hebrew text, that name is only four letters. And we have a fancy name for it, the Tetragrammaton. Then that sounds smart. Tetra meaning four, gramma meaning letters. Boom, all right? <laughs> the four letters. Yod, He, Va, and He in Hebrew. Or Y, H, V, or W, depending on how the rules work, and then another H. And so in... Truth be told, uh, we, we have some guesses about how it's pronounced, but we don't actually know. We, we don't know. Um, modern Hebrew is not the same thing as ancient Hebrew. They're different languages. Um, ancient Hebrew is put back together by academic types. Um, and There are no native speakers of ancient Hebrew at all. And so our absolute best guess is that these four consonants without vowels would be pronounced Yahweh. Again, we don't actually know. And anybody trying to make some bold claim beyond that is simply outpunting the coverage of the scholarship that's actually available to us. Um, to make matters far more complicated, though, um, back in their day, uh, faithful Jews in Israel were so worried that they might even accidentally take the Lord's name in vain. They might say it flippantly or, or irreverently, and so they chose not to say His name out loud at all. And so when reading it publicly... They would replace it with other descriptive words that God used for himself like Adonai or Elohim. A millennia later, when Israel was coming back from the Babylonian exile, uh, they developed a system called vowel pointing. Right? So there's kind of two phases of ancient Hebrew. You have uh, Hebrew without the vowel pointing and Hebrew with the vowel pointing. They, that, that's coming way, way later. And it's because they kind of lost the ability to read Hebrew while they were away off in Babylon. And so the guys who knew how developed a system for showing the, the, the contemporaries how to like, pronounce things. And it's widely understood that they came to, when they came to this personal name, they would use the vowel pointing for Adonai or Elohim to remind public readers that one of those needed to be replaced in that moment. And so modern translators just carry this same tradition forward. Not, not because they're, they're worried that God's going to get really mad at us if we don't have enough reverence when we speak His name, but because it's a way to mark something important. And that important thing is that God is not simply a Lord. He's not simply a deity. No, he makes himself intimately known. He makes himself intimately known. The one who has constantly acted within history for his glory and for the good of his people. He says, go ahead and recount his marvelous deeds. Declare his praise, the psalm writer says. He is not far away. No, he is near. In fact, he's nearer to you than your very own heart. And so whenever, we're, whenever you're reading the Bible and you come to these, you know, see Lord in all caps like that, that's all that's going on there. That's exactly what's going on. It's those four Hebrew letters, but it's, it means something bigger than that. He's not a faraway God. No, He's a very near God. He lovingly and joyfully makes Himself known to you. Now, does that mean that we're supposed to call God by that name today? No. There are some pseudo-Christian groups and some cults that argue that that's required that's what jehovah witnesses believe that you have to use god's real name right um but god never requires that in the bible um and there's that whole not really being sure how it's actually supposed to be pronounced part because that would be a problem for us um doesn't matter what indiana jones taught you is not spelled with a j or what or an i jehovah's wrong and so the psalmist here he calls the congregation to explode with celebration over who God is. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. It's not merely some ritual. It's not not the the simple mechanics of gathered worship. No, no, no. To know God intimately is to be deeply moved to praise Him. But then the psalm writer begins to turn a corner. He does something that seems like a left turn here in verse 3. He says, Blessed are they who observe justice. Who do righteousness at all times? Okay, so there's a beatitude here, right? That's what that is—a beatitude. Uh, Do this, and you will be blessed. Do justice, observe it. Do righteousness at all times. Which, let's be honest, sounds like a pretty awesome thing to do, right? Anybody going? Ah, that's not for me. Who would argue with justice and, and righteousness? Who, who in their right mind would fail to, to get behind those things and celebrate those things and maybe chase after those things? We had a different beatitude a few weeks ago when we looked at, at Psalm 41. Uh, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Do you remember that? But back then, um, both back then and now, uh, we need to see that there's divine promise buried here. There's expectation. There's, there's cause and effect buried here this is a do this and you will be blessed kind of equation we said then that blessing is not to be understood as as merely some material thing because that's what everybody tends to gravitate towards but rather as contentment happiness and abiding satisfaction Another way to word that is to say that God's people live in a way, uh, when God's people live in a way that brings them the deepest possible joy, uh, is, is going to come when they lean into and live consistently with these good things. It's hard to see that promise as anything other than, than wonderful, right? Like, Who doesn't want that? As, it's hard to see that promise as anything other than a clear call to chase after obviously good things. That is until you actually sit down and do the math on it. Um, see, f- for those of us who are, who are most honest, doing righteousness at all times has been a bit of a struggle for you, hasn't it? How many, how many, how many of us are batting a thousand on that one? Me neither. And so while a beatitude, a blessing for the virtuous, sounds like an incredibly wonderful thing, was, while, it while it's clearly a promise to, uh, for things that we can all kind of instinctively agree ought to be celebrated, ought to be rewarded, what it actually ends up doing is hanging over our heads like a pall, hangs over our heads like an indictment. It is a demonstrable fact in my life that I am often selfish, that I am often a selfish person and that I don't always observe justice. All you have to do is watch me for a while. We are full of unrighteousness everywhere we turn. The blessing of the beatitude, while clearly noble, is also just outside of our reach. And the writer of Psalm 106 begins to speak to that disconnect. And so He cries out for grace in verse 4. Look at it. It says, Remember me, O oh Lord, when you show favor to your people, help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. He says, remember me, O oh Lord. Oh, God, remember me, please. Our, our psalm doesn't present his case for, you know, why he's actually more virtuous than what might be seen on the surface. He doesn't plead with God to, you know, shift the position of the goalpost to, you know, just short of where he's standing. So he's not seen as as so unrighteous after all, but he can just take that little step and get himself there. He appeals to the kindness of God to show favor. Favor consistent with the promises he has already made to his people. He knows that God has made promises to be faithful to a faithless nation and he asks to be included in the fulfillment of God's good promises. Show favor to me. Please, God, show favor to me. Include me in the good things that you are already planning to do for the fame of your name. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Maybe you don't know much about Old Testament Israel as a people. Um, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I mean, it can't be that bad. <laughs> Surely, Surely Israel had some some bright moments. Surely our psalm writer is overselling the disconnect that existed between expected virtue and functional practice. Well, you're in luck, because he's going to spend the next three dozen verses um, recounting the history of Israel's disconnect. So look at verse 6. This is the move quick part. It says, Both we and our fathers have sinned, We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Verse 8, Yet he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. And so he saved them from the hand of the, of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then, the, uh, then they believed his words. They sang his praise. All right, so call time out there. Uh, they, they start off by dealing with the story of the Exodus here, right? Every good little Bible student knows the story of the Exodus. God rescues his people out of bondage in Egypt. Cool little story, right? Hundreds of years in slavery. No small deal. Just a, you know, just a handful of plagues and, you know, complete dismantling of one of the greatest empires the world's ever known. Nothing new. What, did you do something less impressive with your summer? God rescues them out from under the hand of their oppressors and leads them back towards a promised land. A land marked out for their possession, right? Uh, milk and honey and final rest in the Lord is all on the table for them. He had just spared them from the Passover. They had just ransacked their captors on their way out the door. And then they immediately get to the edge of the Red Sea, and they see Pharaoh's chariots bearing down behind them. And they immediately, guys, immediately give up trusting that God is good and that he is capable of providing for them. Oh, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Is that why God led us out here? You kidding me? How could any people be that ridiculous? How could God ever tie himself in covenantal love to such a dumpster fire of a nation? But the psalmist says, we and our fathers have sinned. So he doesn't merely point to some embarrassing story of failure in the past. No, he links himself to the failure. We have committed iniquity and done wickedness. We didn't consider your wondrous works. We didn't remember your abundant, steadfast love. Already including himself in the they, he says that they rebelled by the sea. How many of you have been in a situation where you started to get impatient with God? You maybe even accused him of failing to come through and provide. And in order to do that with a straight face, you had to completely ignore the thousand other times in your life that he came through and provided or am I the only moron? I must be the only moron. See, not only is Israel dumpster fire, so am I. But notice what the psalmist says in verse 8. Yet he saved them for what? His namesake. He made known his mighty power he rebuked the sea and pushed back the waves he not only saved them from their adversaries he actually crushed their adversaries underneath the water and then in verse 12 it says they believed his words and they sang his praise it's a really cool story too bad israel's story doesn't end there verse 13 it says but they soon forgot his works They did not wait for his counsel, but they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked, but sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Verse 23, therefore he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So the psalmist smashes several stories together here, uh, but the point is to show that despite God's patient faithfulness towards Israel, it never took Israel very long for them to show their unfaithfulness back towards him. That's the story over and over and over and over again until you're like, how can they keep doing this? They complain about the provision, the food, the water. They complain about the leadership. They try to overthrow Moses and Aaron. And they even go so far as to make an idol and worship it. A golden calf. Because, you know, that's an incredibly worthy replacement for the very personal God, an unfathomably powerful God who heard their cry and rescued them out of generations of slavery. Like, yeah, just a golden calf will do. Pretend ox that we have to feed and bathe. That'll do the trick. And why did they need to make an idol at all? Well, because they, didn't, they were too scared to go up on the mountain and meet with God themselves, so they sent Moses in their place, and now he was taking too long. That's literally all it took. A people rescued out of slavery by miracle after miracle after miracle. That's all it took for them to turn on to full idolatry. We need to, we need to melt down the earrings and make a statue. That'll do the trick. Moses is receiving instruction for what the tabernacle is supposed to look like in this moment. How, how right and godly worship was to, to be shaped for God's people. And God's people were at the foot of the mountain diving headfirst into debauchery. Are there moments of correction and judgment for God's from God's hand for, for those things. Yeah, yeah, there really really is. Um, but if, if I was the one sitting in God's seat in that moment, uh, correction and, and just a little bit of judgment would not have been good enough for me, I would have wiped them out. You're no better. And that's almost what happened. That's almost what happened. Until, until Moses stepped in and pleaded for God to remember his promise. Follow the storyline here. He didn't appeal to to God and try to argue that, you know, things aren't really that bad. God, you shouldn't take this so personal. No, he appealed to the fame of God's name. God, if you kill them, all the other nations will think you failed here. Don't Don't let that be the story that those pagans tell about you. For the sake of your name, Lord, spare them. Verse 24. It says then they despise the pleasant land Having no faith in his promise, they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness, and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. Verse 28. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor, and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed that, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. Then uh, they angered him at the waters of Meribah and it went ill with Moses on their account for they made his spirit bitter and he spoke rashly with his lips. So Israel gets to the edge finally of the promised land uh, but newsflash bountiful lands are typically full of other people who already think they're bountiful. Right? Is that how the math works? It's usually how the math works. The land is full of what seems to be a pretty intimidating people. They call them giants. And so instead, instead of trusting God's promise to give them the land, something he said repeatedly, this is what I'm going to do for you, a promise that they've got absolutely no reason not to trust by this point, we're told instead that that they despised the land. They despised them. They hated the land and had no faith in God's promises. What a charming little people. So the story goes, God turns them around. He will not allow them to enter the land. He solemnly swears that this generation will not get to see it. They will all die out before he lets them in. So they wander around in the wilderness until everybody dies out. But man, oh man, oh the hijinks they get into along the way. The psalmist tells two different stories. The first one comes from Numbers 25. Story that I'm, I'm guessing most people aren't even familiar with because usually they stop, they give up on their Bible reading plan for the year before you get to Numbers 25. Um, it's there. It's really cool. Um, while God is actively protecting Israel uh, through the pagan pro- Balaam, you know that story. Some in Israel start to hang out with the Baal worshippers down at Peor. They participate in the Baal worship. They offer uh, sacrifices and they eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And uh, there's also some Incredibly terrible sexual sin going on. And so they start to, uh, to take some women from this pagan tribe as wives for themselves. And, and God curses them yet again in this story. If you're interested, you can go ahead and read that story for yourself. One guy completely disregards God and Moses as they're telling them to walk away, uh, as they're commanding them to fix the problem. He brazenly, right in front of the tent of meeting, goes and grabs a woman for himself and takes him back to his own tent to finish the final act of marriage. We're talking about brazen sin here. God set a plague on them, we're told. The story ends when a guy named Phineas grabs a spear and goes and kills both of them. The guy and the girl. And We're told in that moment that God relents from his anger. I tell you all on a regular basis, anybody who thinks that the Old Testament is boring is just proving that they've never actually read it. Just cute little children's bedtime story, right? <laughs> that one didn't make it into the children's picture Bible. The other story the psalmist tells is about the second time that Moses has to get water from the rock. The first time, it's a really cool story, and all this stuff happens, and everybody's celebrating God, but then they get thirsty again. And this time, Moses ain't so patient. He disobeys God. He's frustrated at God. He's frustrated at the people. He disobeys what God told him to do. And he makes this grand show of striking the rock with his staff so that the water would come out. You ever watch the spiritual leaders in your life fail utterly? Completely miss the mark? Because Israel did. Israel did. Even Moses, the great lawgiver, right? Moses was a dumpster fire too. Oh, but, I mean, everybody's got some growing pains, Right? I mean, sure, there there were some problems that they had to work out early on, iron out everything, but eventually they found their rhythm, right? No. (laughs) No, not even close. Israel is finally allowed to enter into the promised land. That does happen. Forty years later, only two guys are, are still alive from that first generation, but they do get to go in. Awesome. And it's just as much of a dumpster fire as it was before. Look at verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed Uh, they mixed uh, with the nations and learned to do as they did. Verse 36. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus, they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Let it be known far and wide, all right? That half obedience to God is not obedience at all. That's what we're talking about here. Israel finally comes to the, uh, finally crosses the Jordan. They enter into the Promised Land under the spectacular leadership of a guy named Joshua. And then there's a lot of things that go really, really well. All right, you got the story of Jericho. You got the, the moment where the sun stands still. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Boom, man. Woo. You've also got the reality that Israel didn't do all that God told them to do. Chiefly, they were supposed to drive out all the pagan inhabitants of the land. That was job number one. I don't know some people balk at the idea as if, you know, as if they were somehow, as if it were somehow a morally unjustifiable thing. That God would give that command, but I I would politely respond that those people probably have never actually read those stories with intellectual honesty. It's not the only reason that God is justified in giving that command, but it's a really, really big one. Here it is The people inhabiting the land of Canaan, as Joshua and Israel were were coming in, they were not a morally neutral people. Not at all. They, They were not some otherwise innocent collateral damage in God's promise to give the land to someone else, they were wicked. They were terribly wicked. The Canaanites' continued presence around God's people almost immediately led to God's people, Israel, adopting Canaanite rituals and Canaanite practices and even Canaanite false worship, which included, as we're told here, child sacrifice. Verse 37, the psalm writer writes that Israel was influenced to sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons, and he means that literally. The gods of the Canaanites were Baal, and Molech, and Chemosh, and Asherah, not exactly friendly deities. For all of his good, and there's a lot of good, for all of his good, Joshua failed to lead Israel to do the one thing that God actually commanded them to do. And the fall out of that failure It was not just some unrealized blessings from God's hand that that could have been available to them. No, the fallout was heinous and generational sin. fallout was the book of Judges. Rather than milk and honey and rest in the Lord, the promised land was full of separation from God, countless child murders, and repeatedly falling back into the same kind of slavery that their parents and grandparents had to be rescued out of. So in verse 40, we see this. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his, inher- his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. So God allowed Israel to reap the produce of their sin, and it wasn't pretty. It wasn't a pleasant moment. For a lot of people, their familiarity with the book of Judges is nothing more than kind of a handful of whitewashed children's Bible stories of people who were were strong or people who were brave, and then because of that strength and bravery, they heroically rescued God's people from the problem, right? Isn't that the read normally? But according to Psalm 106, the correct way to read the Judges is to see that God kept having to rescue a wicked and rebellious people out of the problems they kept creating for themselves. You ever stopped and taken an honest account of the times that God has repeatedly rescued out of the problems that you've been making? You ever attempted to pause and soberly recount the incredible patience of the Lord to you? Because the exact wrong way to handle the uh oh, I need help moment is to think to yourself well, God owes me this. Come on, I'm, I'm quite worth his saving. It wasn't because of Israel's value that God continued to step in. It wasn't because they were a people mighty in number, and it certainly wasn't because of any righteousness that existed inherently in them as a people. No, verse 44 captures the tone we're looking for here. Psalmist says, Nevertheless, nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Nevertheless, church, the gospel is found in that word. Nevertheless, God's steadfast love is the cause behind all redemptive causes. In spite of Israel being rightly described as the dumpster fire, it would be unfair to call them anything less than that. He looked upon their distress. Right? It is the repeated theme all throughout the history of Israel. And whether David wrote this psalm or somebody else wrote this psalm, it doesn't really matter. We can drop this psalm in whatever point on the timeline of Israel's history we want, and it still makes a ton of sense. It's never far away from some other moment in their history where their only hope is the steadfast love of the Lord. That's all Israel ever had available to to call on, to point to. And so in verse 47, the psalmist steps out of the history lesson, and he says this, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. So, so we can step out of the history lesson just like the writer of Psalm 106 did. Listen, church, the, the steadfast love of the Lord is all we ever have available to point to either. Both as his people, but listen, also for those on the outside currently being invited in. It's all you have to point to. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Here's, here's what you need to lock in on today. The good news of the gospel is not a call to be righteous before the Lord by any action that you could ever produce from within yourself. God's people, Israel, could never pull that off, and God's people will never pull that off. No, the good news of the gospel is that God hears the cry of those in distress. Period. That he gathers a people for himself from among the nations. That he unites himself in covenant love to them. Not because of their righteousness, but because of his righteousness. How does he do that? By coming and being righteous in our place. God the Father sent the Son. He put on flesh flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus lived the sinless life that I can't live and you can't live. and He died on the, the cross to make payment for your sin, uh, the sin debt that you and I owe. And he was raised again from the dead as a down payment promise for resurrections to come. The promised land of milk and honey and rest in the Lord is still ultimately available. We just needed a forever sinless one. So how do, how do we inherit that promise? Well, we respond in repentance and faithful trust to the one who now stands victoriously over the grave. We turn away from sin and we turn to him uh, in, in faith, in trust. And you can do that today. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you. You, you, don't, you don't need me to respond to Jesus, but I'd love to be helpful. You want to ask, talk about what that response of faith looks like? We can go. Let's go, let's go do that. But what about those of us who are already followers of Jesus? What do we do? How can we respond? Well, there's one more verse that we need to look at in Psalm 106. Verse 48. It says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Follower of Jesus, the psalmist gives us an answer to the beatitude problem that we saw in verse 3. You remember the beatitude problem? Instead of an indictment on those who don't measure up to perfect righteousness at all times, the Lord fulfills the terms of his own blessing so that he may turn around and give the blessing away. He fulfills it from everlasting to everlasting, we're told. The Lord deserves our worship. He deserves every ounce of celebration that exists inside of us. But listen, not not simply because he's done some awesome stuff. He has done that. That's absolutely true. If that's all we could point to, he would still be fully worthy of worship for that and that alone. But that is far from all that we can point to. No, church, he is just as worthy of worship and celebration because of his incredible patience towards us. His incredible patience towards his people. He is just as worthy of worship and celebration because we have been on the receiving end of his steadfast love more times than we can honestly count. As we have time and again been unfaithful towards him, he has repeatedly said, nevertheless. If you're here this morning and you know him, our response is to say amen and then get busy praising him. That's the response. He's not far off. He's not isolated. No, he has made himself intimately known to his people. He has continuously stepped into our situation for our good and for his glory. And the only right response is to proclaim hallelujah what else you got? Praise the Lord. Maybe here this morning you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe maybe you've been here for a while now. God's told you it's time to press into formally joining our church family. We can talk about that. Or maybe you've been following Jesus for a little bit, but you've never been obedient to his command to be baptized yet. We can talk about that too. Or maybe God's placed it on your heart to, to take the gospel to some faraway place that doesn't know him very well yet, and it's time to calling public. Man, I'd love nothing more than to help you think through what those next steps are. But whoever you are, and however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's respond right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Psalm 106. Thank you for being a God who is not scared away by my dumpster fire. For being a God who says, nevertheless for the glory of your name, for the story that will be told about how redemptive you are. Thank you for making yourself known to us. May we we see that faithfulness in you and then respond in kind. And never cease the hallelujahs. Father, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known? Israel didn't deserve to know you either. It wasn't because they were a mighty people. It wasn't because they were righteous. It's because you are good. So show yourself to be good this morning. Call people into your kingdom today. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.